Thursday, October 12th. Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Welcome indeed. I'm Avi Wolfman Errant. Fall is a gorgeous time. Trees full of color, crisp air, but there's nothing that ruins a beautiful autumn day more than the sound of a noisy leaf blower. Mm, or so I've been told. Yeah. People don't really use them in my neighborhood, but I know people got takes mm-hmm. on leaf blowers. Noise, by the way, Cherry, is just one of the reasons more towns and cities are trying to ban gas-powered leaf blowers. And coming up, we're going to look at why they've become a target and the debate around phasing them out. We're going to hear from an activist who wants them phased out in Philly, and we're going to hear from someone who works for the Pennsylvania Landscaper Association and says a ban will harm the industry and its workers. Give us a call if you have opinions on this issue. We already have a ton of comments. Mm -hmm. The number is 888-477-9499. Our email is studio2 at whyy.org. And um, this morning when I came to work, guess what was (laughs) happening right outside of the WHYY building? Didn't plan it, but there was was leaf blowing (laughs) happening. So this thing is real and all sides are going to be covered here. So fall is also the time for bird migration. We have millions of birds migrating through our region right now, but Philadelphia's tall buildings and all the lights at night can disorient them and millions of birds die each year from flying into buildings. I totally did not know this. We have Drexel Academy of Natural Sciences, Jason Weckstein standing by to talk about how we can prevent bird strikes in Philadelphia. We will get there, Cherry, but first let's talk about something happening up in the sky. Yeah, a cosmic spectacle is headed our way. We'll get to see a solar eclipse this Saturday. That is if skies are clear. I really like stuff like this. A solar eclipse, of course, happens when the moon covers part of the sun. It's when the moon is at its farthest point from Earth. If you look out on Saturday, you should be able to see it between 12.05 p.m. and 2.37 p.m. And the moon's maximum coverage of the sun will occur around 121. Perfect. Right in and the middle gonna, of a Saturday? Right in the middle of a Saturday. It's going to be so cool. You'll see that ring of fire. The that, ring of fire. <laughs> that happens yeah. around the, the sun. Um, and, you know, m- multiple eclipses happen every year, but they're not always visible from Philadelphia. So we'll right. get we're very lucky. Um, I remember there was one back in 2017. I had on my cool glasses. So you might want to consider getting some some eyewear to protect your eyes. Um, but this isn't a total solar eclipse. That will mm-hmm. happen on April 8th of next year. For this one on Saturday, 75% of the sun will still shine through. That's pretty good, 75%. Yeah, yeah and the one in April is a total a total eclipse, eclipse of the sun, yeah. But not a total eclipse of the heart. No. Okay. Anyway, um. <laughs> I kind of like it. So look up at the sky on Saturday at 121. Ring of Fire. I do love that description. <laughs> you got hype about that one. I do like that quite a bit. Um, want to mention something that happening in the education mm. space here in Philadelphia. Kind of a shocking turn of events. So typically... When charter schools close in Philadelphia, it's because the school district of Philadelphia says, hey, charter school, you're not doing a good job either managing your books or you're not doing a good job educating Mm -hmm. students. We are forcing you to close. That is not what is happening with mathematics, civics and sciences charter in the northern part of Center City. This is a long running charter school with 900 students, and it is deciding or really one person who runs the school is deciding unilaterally to close it down. Mm. This will be its last year. Uh, Veronica Joyner is the founder and chief administrator of the school and says basically she's retiring and doesn't trust anyone else to run the school and she's closing it down in the building 
will be sold to a nonprofit that she's also a part of. So um, unusual. And now these families will have to look for some sort of solution uh, for their kids. Like I said, I, I covered education for a while. Just don't remember anything like this, Cherry. Yeah, it's very unusual. I My first interaction with her was back in 2014. There was a controversial stop and frisk that happened outside of yep. the school. I remember that. And uh, she's always had like a big personality. You've always kind of heard yeah. of her. I guess at this point, she's 73 years old and, you know, just wants to step down. But it's unusual that she wouldn't right. want the school and her legacy to continue. It is unusual. And I think the other thing about it is so... In the charter school space in Philadelphia, mm. and for people who don't know, charter schools are publicly funded, privately run schools. There are many of them in Philadelphia, and they're su- they were successful, right? Yeah, uh, mathematics. Uh, yeah, well, we won't probably won't get into yeah. specific. Some people say yes, some people say no, but I but put that aside for yeah. now. Um, they they were relatively successful, sure. But I think you oftentimes what I would find in this space is that there were some schools that were kind of like one person's project, mm-hmm. and there were other schools that were more sort of like formalized and set up with an administrative structure like you would find in a public school system and that that would sustain through many different leaders. And the board was more in charge than, say, like the individual school leader. And so that is something you did see in the space. I I never saw a leader just close it down like this. But there are schools where sort of the leader was more kind of like the the key figure and the person kind of in charge of everything and others where it was a more traditional structure. It does raise questions about the, you know, everything sort of evolving around a charismatic leader versus having secession planning and all those things. Um, If your kids are at a school, you might want to take a look at that, especially if you have a leader who is at a certain age. So let's bring us back inside the building. Yeah. We want to mention some very important coverage tonight from the folks on the TV side of WHYY. From 9 to 11, TV 12 is broadcasting a lineup of special programming dedicated to addressing the gun violence crisis here in Philly. There are three programs. First, Reclaiming Our Streets in partnership with 6ABC. Our WHYY reporters, Amanda Fitzpatrick, and Sam Searles, they teamed up with them to investigate what the city is doing to curb the violence, support victims, and prevent future incidents. There's also a documentary called Trigger. It's from First Person Arts. It's actually presented by the city of Philadelphia's Department of Behavioral Health. It's a series of interviews with people from all walks of life who've been impacted by gun violence. And here's a clip because some of the interviews include shooters themselves who are no longer engaged in that cycle of violence shooting a gun and and shooting at people. People respected you, feared you. In my mind, I was a legend. And the third um, program is Heaven, Can You Hear Me? And it focuses on mothers who have lost their children to gun violence. Um, And of course, you know, this deals with trauma. It deals with the the solutions, so many different things. Um, And it's WHYY's contribution to the conversation. Yeah, we've been investing in this issue Mm -hmm. for a while, trying to cover it better. So 9 to 11 tonight, TV 12, this whole block of programming would encourage folks to check it out. Again, that's WHYY TV 12, 9 to 11 this evening. Last evening, yeah, the Phillies won a baseball game, Cherry, ten to two over the Braves. They're now ahead two one in this. <laughs> it's always go Phillies. With I know you, that's, that's that's my line. I'm sticking to it today. Go Phillies. <laughs> we all agree, Cherry. Go mm-hmm. Phillies. They're up now two one in their series over the Braves. They could end it tonight with a win, but all anyone is talking about after their win last night is Bryce Harper, mm. star player for the Phillies, and the stare down. 
Ooh. Do you know what this Break is? it down. Break it down. I will try. Okay, so the Phillies, not last night, but the game prior, they lost. And at the very end of the game, Bryce Harper made a base running mistake. And afterwards, one of the Braves players was in the locker room kind of mockingly saying, attaboy, Harper, attaboy. Mm. That got out of the locker room and got to Harper. And last night, he hit two mammoth home runs. And as he circled the bases, he stared this player down. I mean, like, very obviously stared him down. That makes me like Bryce Harper Yeah, it more. was it was intense. Mm. Um, and it's just a, a sample of how this series has become very emotionally charged. Um, and here, by the way, I, I want to bring this in. This is Bryce Harper talking about that very fired up crowd last night at Citizens Bank Park. There's nothing like coming into the bank and playing in front of these fans. Blue collar mentality, tough, fighting every single day. I get chills, man. I, I, I get so fired up. I... I I, man, I love this place. Yeah, you can feel that. Philly over everybody. That's that. some Philly stuff to do, though. Like, <laughs> how Philly is down. Bryce Harper to stare people down? I will say briefly, it also spurred this whole ethical journalism debate because the player who said Attaboy Harper was not being, like, directly interviewed. He just said it in the clubhouse while a bunch of reporters were present. Mm. And he felt that his sort of, like, the sanctity of the clubhouse had been violated by someone reporting it. And there could be argued that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. However, but you know, the, but the journalists are allowed in there. so And they were in there. And there's a time when they clear the journalists out. Yeah. And then you could just talk as much trash as you want. So I kind of, I wasn't super sympathetic with his argument. Yeah. But I also, I don't do sports journalism. So they have all these weird rules with sports journalists. Well, you know, Whatever. You know what I got to say? Uh-huh. Go Phillies. <laughs> that is all you have to say. And, there you um, go. And I just want to do a quick plug. This weekend on Sunday, I will be one of the MCs of the AIDS Walk. It's something that I really believe in. It's organized by the AIDS Fund. You can check it out if you want to come out, walk. Uh, the AIDS Fund raises money uh, to support people who are battling HIV and AIDS and provides medical support, all that thing. And they're trying to get to zero, zero new infections, zero deaths, and zero stigma. Check us out Sunday morning. You could check out AIDSWalkPhilly.org. And I'll say, go chair. <laughs> Thank you. Proud of you. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Want to transition now to our newsmaker interview. Uh, perhaps you saw this last week. Nearly a thousand birds died in yeah. just one day after striking a Chicago building. And you might recall that right here in Philly, October 2020, we had our largest bird collision ever. An estimated 1,500 birds wow. died after colliding with skyscrapers in a very small section of Center City. It is migration season right now, so mm-hmm. we're going to bring in an expert to talk about preventing bird strikes and at least one initiative that seems to be working. Jason Wexstein is an associate professor at Drexel University and the associate curator of orinth- ornithology at Drexel's Academy of Natural Sciences. Jason, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, explain what is a bird strike and what causes them to happen? Well, we, we don't 100% know the exact cause other than reflective glass and light are problematic for birds. Birds are attracted to light. They're, they're what we call phototactic. Hmm. We don't know why. Potentially, it's because they migrate at night and they actually use the constellations to help them navigate at night when they can see them. They, they use other things too, like the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. So they kind of have redundant systems for doing that. The bottom line is when they see lighted structures, they fly towards them. And when we leave lights on, and we have glass windows, those two things come together and cause a lot of bird death during big migration events. And the event that we saw in Chicago was 
an event of really epic proportions. Mm. My colleagues and friends that live in Chicago told me that it was the biggest migration event they've seen in their entire lives with hundreds of thousands of birds, maybe millions flying over at one time. But people were counting, you know, thousands in short periods wow. of time just flying over their homes, flying through the city. And unfortunately, that building McCormick Place, which is on the lakeshore, has a lot of glass. And when the shades are not drawn and the lights are on, yeah. those windows kill a lot of birds. There were actually more than 1,000 birds killed in total. That was just from that one building. From the one building. Yes. Right. Wow. Right. So we the city know, thank you for noting yeah. that. Thank you. Um, this is not a new problem. And in fact, I was reading that there was a large bird strike event in Philadelphia surrounding City Hall in 1890, exactly. I believe. So it's not a new problem, but there are some, some newer solutions. Tell us what we've done here in Philly to try to ameliorate this. Well, there are a couple of solutions. One of the big things that, that our group, Bird Safe Philly, has done. So Bird Safe Philly is like a consortium that includes the Academy of Natural Sciences, Audubon Mid-Atlantic, uh, Delaware Valley Ornithological Club, and then several local Audubon societies, um, Wincote Audubon Society, and um, King of... Uh, and, uh, uh, We'll, we'll, get, yeah. we'll get people the right information yeah, after yeah, the show, thanks. for sure. Yeah, a a anyhow, um, so what we've the, done the is program, we have a yeah. lights out program. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we've had buildings that have volunteered to turn out their lights during migration, yep. during the peak times of migration at night. And that helps to reduce the number of bird strikes significantly. And we actually know that because that building in Chicago that killed a lot of birds has been studied since 1976. So mm. colleagues of mine at the Field Museum have walked that building every day during migration, quantifying the number of birds at every window, noting whether the lights are on or off or whether the shades are drawn or not. And there's been research published based on that data. It's you know decades of data wow. showing that when the lights are off, it reduces bird kills significantly. Now, it's not the total solution to the problem. One of the big solutions that really would help us out a lot is if we built buildings with bird-safe glass. Bird-safe glass. Yes. Can you uh, clarify that? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's specific kinds of glasses, uh, glass called fritted glass that mm. has essentially lines in it that allows the birds to detect it and see it. Yeah. Um, and that can get put on buildings and can help the birds see it and reduces the number of strikes. You can also treat buildings after the fact. You can use things like Feather Friendly, which is like a tape that has dots on it. So you know, traditionally we would see like little hawk uh, silhouettes that people would put on their windows. It turns out those don't work very well. So oh. there's been research done on this, but these dots do work well. And um, a great example of this is Sister Cities Cafe right outside uh, the Academy of Natural Sciences. That, that's a little teeny building. It doesn't have to be a skyscraper to kill birds. McCormick Place is not a skyscraper. It's a very low building. Um, and Sister Cities Cafe was killing quite a few birds. There are a lot of trees around it, a lot of glass. And Bird Safe Philly was able to raise $8,000 um, through the Audubon Societies and various people involved to treat that building with Feather Friendly. And so far, since it's been treated, it actually hasn't killed any birds. Wow. We've been monitoring it. Wow. So, you know, we know that that Feather Friendly already is, is effective. And, you know, the monitoring is, is just sort of supporting that idea. And, and by the way, I did not know that this was this big of a problem. And so what can regular folks do? Because you said it doesn't have to be a huge building. Um, how do we know when migration is and when we should be doing this? Or, or is this something we should be doing all year round? Well, migration happens predominantly sort of twice a year. Fall is much more protracted. You know, it's over a longer period of time, you know, kind of starting at the end of August all the way into the beginning of December, mm -hmm. really. The peak is now. This is, this is the peak with the most diversity and most, you know, most birds moving um, in this area. It's different in different areas. 
And um, in the spring, it's going to be, you know, starting in late March on into May, um, a, a little trickle into June, but mostly through May. And the, the peak is going to be early May around here. And um, you can treat your windows, turn off your lights if you, you know, at home, because even even big glass windows at home yeah. can kill birds and it all adds up. Right. I mean, this is this is the second biggest killer of birds that we know of. Um, so it's about a billion birds a year just in the United States are killed by by glass and wow. buildings. And just quick follow up. I mean, so this could happen at your house. It does. Or yeah. it does happen where at birds houses. literally crash into people's homes. Yes. Yep. Big big bay window or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Yep. And and we do have information if you go to Bird Safe Philly, mm. you know, the website, there's information on how to, you know, what you need to do to treat your windows and and that sort of thing. So um is there we have a couple minutes left, Jason. Is there is there a reason why birds would migrate through a large urban area like Philly or Chicago? Are there advantages to that landscape for them? Or is it just happened to be along the way? It just happens to be along the way. You know, if you imagine how, you know, th these birds have been doing this for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, right. you know, this is- this Way is before in, there were cities, way before yes, human civilization. Yes, this is ingrained in their genetics. In yeah. fact, we know that that the route that birds take does have, there's a genetic component to that. Wow. There are certain populations that migrate to certain places and they have, you know, genetic, genetically encoded urges to go in certain directions. And it's, it's not just environmental. And so we built alert. something in their path more or less. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were here before us. They were doing the same thing before we got exactly. here. Exactly. And it really happens across all of the United States, right? It's every, you know, bird migration is everywhere and it happened like new world, you know, migration, migration here in North America is pretty epic. Yeah. And you go to places like Cape May, the Chicago lakefront, and you just see massive quantities of birds. You go to a place like Heinz National Wildlife Refuge right here in the city, you can see large numbers of birds. It's, it's incredible. Uh, real quick before we go, we have about 30 seconds. Any birds we should be looking out for now if we want to do some amateur yeah, bird watching, one or two species that we can keep an eye out for? Yeah, this time of year, there, there are lots of warblers around, warblers. migrant warblers, and they come through the city, like right in the park, right near the Academy of Natural Sciences this morning. I saw oven birds walking around in the bushes, and oven hopefully they'll birds. make it out of the city. Yeah, they're a little teeny warbler that walks around on the ground and huh. feeds on the ground, has a little orange stripe on the top of its head. So I could Google oven birds and be on the lookout for oven birds. Exactly. And maybe yep. that will lead me so down a path. So this is a great time for birds watching that. It is a great time for bird watching. Absolutely. I'm out as much as I can be. <laughs> when you're not stuck in a studio with us, Jason, that <laughs> exactly. is uh, that is uh, Jason Wexstein, uh, Associate Professor at Drexel University, Associate Curator of Ornithology at Drexel's Academy of Natural Sciences. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. And coming up next, Avi, they are noisy. They are bad for the environment, but some say we can't do our jobs without them. We're talking about gas-powered leaf blowers. Stick with us, and we want to hear from you. Studio 2 at WHYY.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Ah, there it is. The sound of fall for many people. As soon as those autumn trees start dropping their leaves, the blowers come out in full force. And that noise, particularly from gas-powered machines, is almost deafening. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erit. 
This is Studio Two. And I'm Cherry Gregg, and I heard that sound this morning on sure the way did. into work. Increasingly, municipalities across the country are considering bans on the two-stroke gas leaf blowers, and not just because of the noise. These machines emit a surprising amount of pollution that poses risks for workers, residents, and the climate. California, Seattle, Washington, D.C., Burlington, Vermont and Vancouver are just some of the places outlawing or phasing out gas blowers. And there's a growing effort in our region in Sheltonham, Lower Marion, Springfield, Teddy Friend, Media and in Philadelphia. And with us now to talk about why we should consider phasing out gas leaf blowers is Seth Lieberman, co-founder of Quiet Clean Philly, the volunteer group spearheading the effort in the city. Seth, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks, Jerry. It's good to be here. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear from Greg Robertson with the Pennsylvania Landscape and Nursery Association about how bans could impact that industry and its workers. Of course, we want to know what you think. Should gas-powered blowers be banned? Give us a call, 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at whyy.org. So, okay, Seth, we all think we know what a gas powered leaf blower is and what it does. And to me, they're loud and annoying, but you say there are much bigger issues that could affect our health. Lay out the problems with these gas-powered leaf blowers. It's right. If they were just annoying, we wouldn't be volunteering our time and shipping in our own money for business cards and websites, etc. It turns out this two-stroke engine is considered the dirtiest engine allowed by law. Uh, There are emissions and there's noise. But what it does is you you throw in gas, you throw in oil to the the engine, and and when it runs, 30% of it just goes up in the air as a plume of cloud. And Mm. that's what you're smelling, that smell. And those are particulates, unburned particulates. And then the rest of it is burned as emissions. So it's emissions and noise are the big problem. Got it. So the case against it is threefold from what I understand. Hurts the environment hurts human health, and emits noise. Walk us through that case sort of point by point. Okay, well, first of all, this is not uh, an unknown thing. The EPA has said that the that benzene, butadine, formaldehyde, the other chemicals in it, they are carcinogens and they cause asthma. And as we're focused on Philly, as you know, in Philly, more than one in five of the kids have asthma. Yeah. So this is a big deal issue. Think about the people who strap them on their back. One of our um, uh, immigration attorneys we work with, he interviewed a client who said, I know all day I'm inhaling these toxic fumes, but if I say something to my boss, he'll just say, we'll find somebody else to work for $26 an hour. Hmm. We also know that just one hour, this is based on a study from Edmonds, is that we know that just one hour of using one gas leaf blower causes just as much planet climate change gases, emissions, as driving a a truck all the way from Philadelphia all the way to Florida. So that's a big part of it, right, Seth? The idea that even with a small Mm -hmm. amount of use, you could be doing environmental damage equivalent to what a much larger machine does over a longer period of time. Because you think like, well, people don't use them for that long. It's not that big a deal. The argument you're making is even that short amount of use, big deal. It's not a short amount of use. They're now used all year round. It's not just during leaf blowing 
um, um, season. If you look at a, a religious institution or a school, sometimes you'll see 10 or 12 people out there blowing gas leaf blowers for many hours. So just think about what that's doing to our climate, the health of our communities, and also the health of the laborers who are working mm. there. I want to talk about, I mean, how many leaf blowers are we talking about here? Because, yeah, you see them, you know, out. But, I mean, are there are there millions of them? What, what, what are we talking about here as far as the pervasiveness of them? You know, it, it, we've actually tried to, to drill. We're working with some academics at HUP, and we're trying to drill down. We don't know that number yet, um, but we it, it's less a question about how many blowers mm-hmm. as how many hours of blowers are happening. And we know that the consumer market increasingly is moving toward electric and battery, which mm-hmm. we know works perfectly fine, and it's proven, and we can discuss that. But um, but we know that on the commercial side, on the government side, and just in terms of people g- getting cheap uh, cheap uh, lawn care, we know that they're happening all over. Interesting. Well, you yeah. talked about those alternatives, Seth. Want to bring in a caller to transition to that topic? Claire, uh, you are on Studio Two. Um, what is your question or comment? I understand you're using some electric equipment at your house. I have an electric lawnmower and an electric leaf blower, and all you do is charge the batteries. I mean, it takes no time. They're, they're not really 100% quiet, but hearing what your guest just said and from the research we did, we know how good it is for the environment, and they do a terrific job, and we have neighbors who hire lawn care people, and we have the most fabulous front porch. We love to sit on early in the morning with our coffee, these guys come around with the most insanely noisy <laughs> equipment. And it's like, all right, let's go back in the yep. house, close the windows, close the doors. It's so yeah. awful. But, and there's an alternative. And we use them. They're great. And I think everyone should. Absolutely. And so, Thank you, Claire. Yeah, re- react to Claire. Are there, what alternatives do they have? Clearly, Claire loves hers, the electric version, what alternatives are out there? I'll talk about that, but I also would like to talk about noise in a minute, which is the other big issue mm. we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. And Claire did raise that. But um, uh, Consumer Reports just did an evaluation of gas leaf blowers versus the battery equivalents. And they said that for now, they're roughly equivalent. Uh, and you can look on our website, quietcleanphilly.org. And uh, 6 ABC News did a segment focused on that and also featuring Quiet Clean Philly. Um, We know that cities like Washington, D.C., which did a two-year phase-out and now are almost two years into it, is a similar climate and it's a similar foliage to Philadelphia. There are no more gas leaf blowers in Washington, D.C. You walk around the streets, you look at the lawns, the leaves are blown, they're using the batteries. It's now proven it works. What about cost, though? I'm I'm sure that's got to be a sticking point for a lot of people. What's the cost comparison between electric and gas-powered? Well, the cost is a big deal. There's one economic study that's been done. It's out of Santa Cruz, an economic study looking at the cost of of gas versus uh, electric. And it says if you just put your gas, you put throw your gas ones in the garbage, you buy electric ones, you buy the batteries, you buy the chargers for your truck, how does it compare? In the Santa Cruz study, they found that you you would have an upfront cost, and in 9.7 months, you would break even, and after that, your ROI would increase because the cost of maintenance and energy is far lower. 
The only problem with that study was done when gas cost $6 a gallon in California. So what we have been led to mm. believe that it's more likely maybe a one-and-a-half-year ROI return. Yeah. And that's why we're so, we're so focused. We want to do the same thing that Washington, D.C. and others do. We want to make sure we support the, um, the, the local landscapers with training. We want to find grants. We want to find loans. We want to find tax incentives. We want discount coupons to Subsidize help the transition, essentially. That's it. Okay. All right. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Seth Lieberman, co-founder of Quiet Clean Philadelphia. They're working to ban gas-powered leaf blowers here in our region. And um, if you want to join in to the conversation, you can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. I want to bring in an opposing view. Greg Robertson is the government relations consultant with the Pennsylvania Landscape and Nursery Association. He's here now with us to share his concerns about what a shift to battery-powered machines would mean for that industry. Greg, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you. It is great to be here. And um, if I could just correct one thing, mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'm in opposition with much of what Seth said. I oh, think wow. he done a lot. Um, the the uh, gasoline-powered two-stroke engine is really uh, technology that's uh, past its prime. Um, and I think the uh, the faster we can move to battery powered equipment, the better it's going to be for everybody, not only um, for the public, but for the landscape contractors. Um, the uh, battery powered equipment's easier to maintain. It's mm. simpler. It doesn't require the fuel mixing that the two stroke engine requires. Um, there are a few. Uh, one of the things you have to realize is that this industry is changing very, very rapidly mm -hmm. as uh, manufacturers try to um, get the technology up to speed so that we could find widespread use in the, uh, the landscape industry. Um, a couple of things. One is the battery life is a problem because we have landscape crews in the spring, particularly when they're working 10, 12 hour shifts. Um, you know, the battery life is just not there to support that. So you have to have multiple batteries and mm. the batteries are usually the most expensive part of the equipment. So, Greg, let me, fact, and, and just let me just want to yeah. jump in here, Greg. So when we talk yeah. about legislation, when we talk about finding some way to speed along this shift, which you say is going to happen anyways, what type of legislation do you think works and what type do you think does not work? I don't think you need legislation. None, none at all. I think I think the technology is going to when the technology gets to the point where it becomes um, cost efficient for landscape. They're going to move to that because of all the advantages I just mentioned. Um, but the technology, like I said, is changing very rapidly. But it's not quite there because um, you've got the problem of okay, you're in the field um, and your battery goes dead. How do you recharge it? Um, you know, there are those kind of problems, I think, that we we can overcome. But we see um, a lot of the companies innovating now so that they're building field chargers that you could carry in your trunk. The problem is now they're very, very expensive. Um, and so there there is a cost that's associated with this equipment. It is more expensive, yeah. not only because you have to buy the equipment, but you have to buy multiple batteries. So you've got you know, backups, uh, mm -hmm. so when you're out in the field, yeah. 
you know, if you're a homeowner, uh -huh. you know, you're going to spend an hour maybe blowing leaves and that's plenty enough. Um, but if you're a landscape contractor and you've got a crew out there for 10 hours in a day, um, you, you know, you're going to need more than one battery. And, and, we're, and uh, we want to bring a caller here, Jen from Downingtown. Uh, her husband owns a landscaping company uh, and has a comment. Jen, you are on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi, yeah. I just don't see how this is going to work unless the technology improves. You know, we're all for cutting down our emissions, but, you know, the power isn't there yet. Mm. My, my husband works by himself, and, you know, you just can't switch from gas to electric right away. The, the power isn't there. Plus, how do they, you know, pay for it? If, if everything was equivalent... They would do it, but yeah. it's not. Interesting. That's a great perspective, Jen. And, I, and I want to bring in a comment here from Eric, who, mm -hmm. who just says it bluntly. Battery leaf flowers, blowers are, are almost useless. useless. Mm -hmm. uh, Seth Lieberman, co-founder of Quiet Clean Philly, you've been listening to this. I know you cited some studies earlier that said that they were equivalent. It sounds like some folks in the field just don't agree. Um, how do you parse that? Well, first of all, a lot of people haven't tried them lately. The... Uh, the technology, it's clearly there because in Oakland since 2021, in Los Angeles since 1998, in D.C., completely phased out as of January 1st, 2022. It's already working. So that's an outdated argument. In terms of the cost, that's legitimate. Mm -hmm. There is an upfront cost, not just for ba batteries, spare batteries and chargers. The Santa Cruz study did consider that, and they still came up with the positive ROI. Now, and you mentioned that's one study. There mm -hmm. hasn't been more than one study yet. And, and you know, right. sometimes one study can be wrong. So I, I guess I'm guessing that, Seth, you'd like to see a little bit more research in this area? Um, I'm happy for more research. However, I don't think we have time to let the free market go. Uh, you know, um, uh, Bill McKibben, uh, who founded 350.org, who just wrote Electri Electrify Now, says if we are in danger in the next couple years of missing the 1.5 degrees Celsius where the wildfires mm. and floods are, go, are like much more regular than now. Talking about climate change tipping points there. Exactly. Okay. And, and we know that regulation works. And I want to bring in another caller. We have uh, Barbara from Wallingford, who has a point of view about leaf blowers generally. Barbara, you're on Studio 2. What, are your, what is your question or comment? Well, my comment is that there's yet another perspective on leaf blowing, and that is don't. Hmm. Um, you know, we hmm. were in a crisis. Uh, insect populations are drastically falling. And if you leave the leaves on your lawn that will support those insects, those pollinators, et cetera. So my comment is, leave the leaves. And I got to mention that Anya wrote, I don't really understand why leaves need to be blown around at all. It seems to be solely for aesthetic purposes. It also is disruptive to native insect populations. Anya feels the exact same way. Um, you know, Greg, your comment on that, I mean, do landscapers need to be doing this? And, and Seth, your thoughts as well. We'll start with you, Greg. Okay. The uh, I mean, if you have a lawn um, and you leave the leaves on it, it will kill your grass. I mean, that's that's the long and the short of it. Now, there are alternatives to having a lawn, um, and meadows, things like that. And many of our members specialize in doing that kind of uh, landscaping. So it depends on the kind of landscape that you have and the kind of landscape that you want to maintain. 
Yeah, what do you think about that, Seth? Uh, part of this solution, perhaps, is that we just shift what mm-hmm. we think of as good landscaping. And landscapers can still be doing the work. They're just not doing the work to preserve lawns necessarily. Is that a path forward here? And I, I know it's hard to change lots of hearts and minds all at once, but don't do you think there's some possibility there, Seth? The, the, the vision we have of what a good lawn looks like comes out of your, uh, England and France, and it's like this Versailles kind of view, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a problem. And I would love it if people left their leaves or just, as we do, just mulch their leaves and leave them on the lawn. But we're in a climate emergency. We don't have time to persuade people to go that way. That's Bill McKibben's argument. We need to move now or we're going to miss the 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah, and I want to bring in another caller. Clearly, people are really riled up about this. Uh, Tim owns a landscaping company, and he's made the switch. Tim, you're on Studio 2. What is your question or comment? Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, with, with the leaf blowing, um, most companies stop mowing um, the end of October to allow leaves to pile up so they can charge separately, mm. um, which to me is just a model that does not make sense. Um, I continue mowing weekly, um, and the benefit there is as the leaves fall, you continue um, mowing them. It chops them up into small pieces, um, which is great for the, the soil health and, and the worms. Um, so as owner of Soil Shepherds, um, landscaping company that soil health to me is paramount um, and anything if, if there are too many leaves um, then I'll just blow them into the landscape because I, I agree with the the other callers that you know insect populations are important mm. leaf litter matters not just for the soil health but also for our, our buggy friends that's fascinating and Thank Tim you. and Tim you're using all electric equipment is that right that's correct I have so I'm only mowing one full day a week um, so I have a Greenworks commercial mower um, so that, that gives me four hours continuous, which is enough for me to mow all day. And then I also use Ego equipment. Mm. Um, so I have the Ego backpack blower um, in addition to chainsaw and everything else. Um, but, and, and I can share, when I started out, I had I put a um, solar panel on top of my box truck, mm. um, and, and that would go into a Jackery, um, which I know you talked about earlier, the ability for a portable battery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I no longer have the box truck, but I still use the Jackery. Um, so if I am in the field and I do run short on a battery, I'm able to put it in and, and recharge. Um, and, and then also, you know, my customers are, are um, really do value the electric, and, and there's no yeah. problem with me plugging in at a customer's house if needed. Interesting yeah. perspective, Tim. And Thank Greg, you. And Greg, I want you to comment on this because, Tim has really found a way. I mean, should there be more training for landscapers? Because Tim has found multiple ways to kind of quicken the shift from the gas-powered leaf blowers to um, the electric. And he's more environmentally uh, aware in the way in which he treats um, the lawns of his customers. Should there be more training for these landscapers to help the move happen? Um, sure. And we've we've got a lot of our members who are experimenting with electric. Um, they are using the battery powered when it makes sense to use it. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, the industry getting educated. So education will be helpful um, and uh, making that transition. I, I think it's going to happen naturally. It, it, there's just too many advantages to battery powered equipment and not for that not to happen. You know, as soon as we get improved battery life and uh, 
the uh, getting charging times down to the point where, you know, you can stay in the field for 10 hours and not uh, worry about running out of power. Interesting. It seems like the, 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 the points of disagreement here are really just about how to make the transition and how quickly we can make the transition, not whether the transition is going to happen. I want to bring in another point of view. Uh, and Seth, perhaps you can respond to this. Eugene says we should ban gas powered everything, mm-hmm. portable generators at street festivals, leaf blowers, everything. Seth, can you get on board with that argument? I, I, would, I, I have no problem with that. Um, the reason we, we're starting with the gas leaf blowers is that the two-stroke engine is especially polluting and also especially loud. And we know that the noise creates, it damages hearing, it raises cortisol, it makes people angry. But ultimately, we have to electrify our whole country and our world, really. Because I think about snowblowers. You know, I think about the pride people get. Avi and I were talking earlier today Mm. about, you know, when people buy their home, they have land, they have grass, they buy these devices, um, including gas powered lawnmowers, riding lawnmowers, all these things. Um, Why? I mean, and you kind of talked about a little bit, but shouldn't it be even broader to deal with all these other devices as well? It's great that it's broader. And California, as of 2024, will make it illegal to buy any of these things. However, because the two-stroke combines the gas and oil, it's by a factor of many times worse than just a regular uh, gas-powered lawnmower. We'd love to bring you back into the conversation, Greg Robertson, government relations consultant for the Pennsylvania Landscape and Nursery Association. You talked about the fact that industry is moving in the direction toward electric, and it's kind of a question of, of how fast the technology can improve. Isn't there something we can do to help industry improve the technology quicker? I mean, is, is there something, because it, it does feel a little bit like tough to just sit back and, and wait, even if it's going to happen, because we're all a little antsy here. I mean, is there something we can do well, to help industry improve technology faster? Well, I don't know. I think the market's going to take care of that. In fact, I just found a new company. It's a German company, Crest, that has come into the United States now with a full line of um They've, they've come up with a full package for landscape contractors that includes a charger you can put in your truck um, with equipment and batteries. And that the stuff is very expensive right now. But, you know, when that cost comes down, we're just seeing this innovation continue. So as the innovation continues, the competition uh, continues, the price is going to come down. The one issue that I want to bring up that nobody has mentioned yet, and that's battery disposal and recycling Mm -hmm. Um, for a business a lithium-ion battery is considered a hazardous waste and must be disposed of as a hazardous waste which is very expensive one of the things that we've got to figure out is okay how are we going to have these batteries because a landscape contractor will go through batteries pretty quickly um you know with the with the cycle times for recharging and that sort of thing so We've got to figure out a way. Once a battery is spent, um, how does it get back, re- get recycled and uh, and reused? Right now, there some companies are doing some of that, but um, you know, for a business to uh, have to dispose of those lithium-ion batteries as a hazardous waste just adds to the expense. And I know I don't know that that has been factored into the the uh, life cycle costs of these. Real quick, Seth, uh, any response on that? We have just about 15, 20 seconds. 
I just want to make a pitch for regulation. If you remember Los Angeles in the 1970s, one of the smoggiest cities in the world, we regulated tailpipe emissions. Now it is relatively clean, even with many more vehicles and people. Uh, regulation and government can help speed the transition, get us where we need to be. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, that is Seth Lieberman, co-founder of Quiet Clean Philly. Seth, thanks for joining us. Uh, Greg Robertson, thank you as well, government relations consultant for the Pennsylvania Landscape and Nursery Association. Thank you both for being here. We have a bit of breaking, breaking news, news that yeah. we just want to read into the show before we go to break. Cherry. Yes. New indictment charges have been brought up against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez for being an unregistered agent of the Egyptian government. The superseding indictment was just filed in Manhattan Federal Court. So that, that is, is on breaking top. News. That is on yeah. top of those bribery charges. We will be following that. We'll be back with you next week. As we end our show, as always, we want to thank our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Joan Isabella is WHYY's general audio manager. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. You can head on over to WHYY.org slash studio two. Or download us wherever you get your pods from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi wolf And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us. And be sure to tune in tomorrow for The Connection with Marty Moskowain and her conversation with PBS NewsHour host Amna DeVos.